This is Northwest This Week with your host, Mark Christopher. Hi, everybody. Happy holidays as this gets started here with Thanksgiving. Hello and welcome. RSV continues to leave its mark on schools and kids, not to mention how many crowded ERs we're seeing right now. Growing concerns over the potential impact on the national rail strike is still hitting our news desk. And new call for improving traffic safety across our area this past week with the many accidents and collisions we reported, you can imagine. This is just a sample of some of these stories we have for the week ending November 26. And you have found the perfect way to catch up. Maybe you only got a headline or two? Here we go with the efforts of our entire news staff at Northwest News Radio. A child in Kent County has become Washington State's first pediatric flu death of the season. The death of the elementary school-aged child last week from flu is a reminder, says King County Public Health's Dr. Eric Chow, that kids and older adults are especially vulnerable to the viruses going around right now. With such high activity for flu and RSV, Chow says it's important to test to know which your kids might have if they're sick, but he says check with their doctor first. Whether that means that they need to come in for testing or whether there's testing that they can do at home for, say, like COVID-19, those are principles to kind of set up and establish beforehand. Chow says the same is true before taking your child to the emergency room. Call an advice nurse or do a telehealth visit. They have to be there to take care of people, regardless of their capacity. And whatever we can do to take steps as a community to uh, mitigate that, I think we should all be employing. And Chow says it's important to remember the strategies from the pandemic because they'll help now. Masking, distancing, and hand washing. Ryan Harris, Northwest News Radio. Some local school districts are warning parents to keep their sick kids at home as the respiratory illness, RSV, continues to spread. RSV is being tracked in part by absenteeism as kids miss school with the symptoms noted by registered nurse Sparrow Helland. Fever, coughing, congestion, runny nose. It sounds like a cold, but Helland, assistant nurse manager at Harborview's pediatric clinic, warns for some, RSV can be life-threatening. Those at greatest risk are under two years of age. Um, Those that maybe were born prematurely or have an underlying lung disease. Life-threatening or not, school officials are taking it seriously. In the Tumwater District, for example, the Olympian reports the school nurse at Black Lake Elementary has sent a letter home telling parents families of children who arrive at school with signs of illness will be contacted to come pick their student up. Corwin Hake, Northwest News Radio. Now we checked on a story in the North Area. A record rise in pediatric respiratory illnesses is putting strain on hospitals in Whatcom County. Northwest News Radio's Marina Rockinger. Children in Whatcom County are being hospitalized at a rate four times higher than in the past five years, according to health officials. Dr. Greg Thompson, co-health officer with the Whatcom County Health Department, addressed the concerns in a video posted on YouTube. He says illnesses like RSV, the flu, and COVID-19 are all hitting the county hard. In many cases, kids can be treated at home with fever reducers, lots of water, and rest. Dr. Thompson indicates when to take action. But when these fevers continue to worsen, last five days or longer, or if a family member is initially getting better, but the fever comes back again, then you should notify your child's health care provider. As a result of the increase in cases, Dr. Thompson says there's a shortage of prescription antibiotics like amoxicillin, as well as over-the-counter pain and fever reducers. Marina Rockinger, Northwest News Radio. Moving along here for Northwest News this week, there is a growing body of research that suggests just how devastating the impact of remote learning was on some children during the pandemic. Laura Meckler taking a closer look and had this story for the Washington Post and shared with our listeners. Okay, Laura, what are the researchers telling us? Well, the first thing they're telling us is that there were steep declines in academic achievement over the course of the pandemic, especially that first year. We really just saw test scores just plunge 
um, between the pre-pandemic period in, in 2019 and and uh, spring of 2021 um, at the end of that first year of of a combination of learning from home and having really disrupted school, even for those who were in person. So the first thing that we know is that it's just it was really very significant losses. But those losses were not spread evenly among all children. There are some people who were hit harder, and among them are the people who remained remote for the longest. Students who were in those schools and those school districts did have deeper drops than others. Kids at high poverty schools, so most likely to come from poor families themselves, had bigger drops. And that combination of remote plus high poverty was particularly devastating. And we also have seen differences during this recovery period. You know, we have last school year was relatively normal. And the good news is that students did start to achieve again at something more approaching normal rates. But they aren't making up any of the lost learning. So they're still behind. And in particular, quite a few researchers have found that the older students, especially kids in high school and upper middle school, they're really having the hardest time catching up, which is concerning because they have the least amount of time available left in their school time to catch up. And of course, that brings up the question, then what, if anything, can or is being done at this point to address all of that? Does it get better as time passes? Well, you know, we, we see some improvements, but it, not as much as is needed. I think that there's a widespread agreement of that. They do have money to address learning loss, but it's really variable how they're using it. In some cases, they're spending money on tutoring and they're extending the school time that's available for kids. But really, there isn't been a lot of standout achievement yet in this regard. You know, higher education is so important in this country, and, and rightfully so. Is there a concern that we might see sort of a toll taken there as these children move on to college age at this point? Well, you know, I, I think that that's still an open question to some extent as we see some of these kids move into college whether this will affect them long-term. You hear some people making pretty dire predictions of a lost generation of kids, and we'll have to see whether that turns out to be true. That's Laura Meckler. You can read much more on this online. Go to WashingtonPost.com. Bill O'Neill of Northwest News Radio. We've entered the time of the year that can make or break a small business. In fact, many small stores and restaurants will have a difficult time staying open here during the holiday season. And let's find out why. They survived the worst of the pandemic, only to be brought to their knees by a wave of flu and, yes, COVID cases during a very important time of year. Yeah, one of ours, we just got a positive test yesterday. Four other cooks tested positive. We're closed. Kurt Huffman owns several restaurants in the Northwest, but this wave of illness is preventing him from keeping all of them operating normal business hours. Out of 30, there's probably one closed a week some night. Marcy Landolfo owns a small shop in Portland but had to close when she herself got COVID. We had to close uh, three days this week and the two days that we are open, very limited hours just because we don't have the staffing to provide adequate break time for the people that are healthy enough and thankfully willing to work. Health experts have warned that not only are we due for another wave of COVID infections, but since so many have taken off their masks, we're all catching everything everything that's out there from colds to flus. Marcy tells our news partner KATU, mandate or not, she's going to have to require masks inside her store. And she says there's already been pushback. Protecting my employees is my number one priority above anything else. Um, If I don't have, you know, if my employees don't feel safe and protected, 
who's going to want to come to work? I mean, that's just silly. I'd say probably 20% of them wear masks themselves, um, which is probably a smart decision. The holiday season, even specific days like Small Business Saturday, days meant to prop up small businesses, they're all backfiring. Both Marcy and Kurt and several other small business owners ask for your patience and for your patronage when they are able to open their doors. You scramble to find people to take over. And you hope for a holiday miracle. Brian Calvert, Northwest News Radio. In our next segment, we'll give you the latest findings on the railroad strike here and where it stands. Also, new numbers of homeless children here in our state. And here for you now, this story, it's been revealed that the board of a local health system used federal pandemic relief money as a way to award bonuses to hundreds of its managers. Crosscut reports that in June, commissioners for Evergreen Health in Kirkland approved an exception to the hospital's bonus program to count federal pandemic relief in its annual revenue calculation. And that triggered $1.9 million in management bonuses. It was a four to three decision, and it resulted in average bonuses of more than $9,000 for managers. And it comes at a time when the facility is now reporting millions of dollars in operating losses. Crosscut also reports the commissioners who approved the move did not receive the bonuses, and Commission Chair Tim McLaughlin insists they did not, in his words, divert the federal COVID aid to line the pockets of executives. Greg Herschel, Northwest News Radio. It's great to have you with us, and I'm glad you're finding use of a way to catch up on the stories of the past week. I'm Mark Christopher. It's Northwest News This Week, ending November the 26th. You're listening to Northwest This Week with Mark Christopher. Let's get back to it here. The threat of a rail worker strike has local links in the supply chain concerned about major interruptions. Ryan Harris with this story. The $2 billion a day interruption to the U.S. economy from a rail strike means more than Washington farmers' goods not moving or even empty store shelves. Companies that make chemicals like those used to purify your drinking water would stop shipping a week before the December 5th cooling off period ends to make sure no dangerous materials are left sitting on rail cars. Ian Jeffries, CEO of the Association of American Railroads, tells CNN he sees a path forward in talks. The railroads have shown a commitment and a willingness to reach agreements based on the recommendations of President Biden's Presidential Emergency Board, and that's something that we stand by. A statement from the Northwest Seaport Alliance says in part, quote, we are hopeful for a timely contract resolution and remain in close contact with logistics partners to ensure that port activities remain operational. Ryan Harris, Northwest News Radio. Starbucks says Safety concerns are the reason the company closing a store in Seattle's Capitol Hill area. Labor organizers call it retaliation. Starbucks has told staff at the Broadway East and Denny Way location their workplace will close permanently December 11th. Starbucks tells the Seattle Times attempts to address safety and security concerns there have been unsuccessful. But for members of the recently formed Starbucks Workers United, it is not a coincidence the announcement comes less than a week after staff at the Broadway and Denny store participated in the Red Cup Rebellion, a one-day strike. We are just, you know, constantly understaffed and overworked. That's union rep Sarah Pappen. On Twitter, the union points out the Broadway and Denny location was one of the first stores nationally to unionize and that the closure coincides with the one-year anniversary of the union's first win at a store in Buffalo, New York. 
Corwin Hake, Northwest News Radio. Another story of business that caught our eye this past week. The proposed merger between Kroger and Albertsons getting even more pushback. Albertsons and Safeway are already one company, and Kroger owns Fred Meyer and QFC, so a merger between the two has raised antitrust concerns. Attorney General Bob Ferguson has already stepped in in an attempt to stop the move, and now lawmakers are getting involved. Congresswoman Pramela Jayapal, a Seattle Democrat and one of the most progressive members of the House, is calling on the federal trade. Commission to investigate the deal. It was almost a decade ago when the FTC report uh, did a report that found that concentration in the grocery industry resulted in significant increases in consumer prices. And neither Kroger nor Albertsons has responded to our requests for comment. Jeff Pogel in Northwest News Radio. Thanks, Jeff. Amazon has been ordered to stop retaliating against workplace activists as well. Kathy O'Shea here. U.S. District Judge Diane Gujarati ruled there was reasonable cause to believe the company committed an unfair labor practice by firing a former employee involved in organizing a company warehouse in New York. Gujarati issued a cease and desist order but refused to reinstate that employee after determining no evidence showed his termination had considerable impact on organizing efforts. The e-commerce giant was ordered to post copies of the court order and distribute electronic copies to employees. Kathy O'Shea, Northwest News Radio. The Netherlands, a country just a bit larger than Maryland is the largest meat exporter in Europe. The Dutch, in fact, can also grow tomatoes with a fraction of the water used by other nations. Now, it seems a land of tulips and windmills is now the epicenter for developing the kind of farming techniques that could withstand climate change. A story found in Washington Post and Laura Riley was behind it. Let's give a listen. We all know what farms look like, right? Or so I thought. But scanning through the images in your report, Laura, it, it's so bizarre at times. The lights, the towers, the robots, waste-free pigs. What's going on in the Netherlands? <laughs> it's like the farming of the future, for sure. So, yeah, they have greenhouses that would cover Manhattan, the size of Manhattan, twice. That's how how much greenhouse space they have. And they've really been at the vanguard of technology and AI uses and robotics and all these things and vertical indoor farming and the use of LED technology. So it's also exporting not just those crops, but the technology itself. And we're starting to see it replicated all over the planet. You know, I'm a guy with a last name that's a bit Dutch, but not to sound glib here, why the Dutch? Why, why are the most powerful agri-food businesses drawn to the Netherlands? Well, I think some of it may be about history. You know, I mean, they're, the, the Netherlands, their kind of moment as a superpower was really during the, the spice trades. And they were a naval kind of world player. And it really was also at the time about the quest for food. And so since World War II, they really have had this mandate of producing twice as much food with half as many resources. And a lot of that is via, you know, very good animal husbandry, um, you know, minimal use of, of fertilizers and pesticides, and very smart use of water. So they're able to export all kinds of food, fruits, vegetables, uh, meat products as well. But how widespread are these farming techniques getting exported? Well, we actually, one of the, the companies that I, I wrote about in this, the, the, farm that, the farmer that does chickens, they're actually exporting to the U.S. right now. So they have, in Indiana, they have a huge chicken farm that will raise eggs specifically for Kroger. So this is technology that we're starting to see replicated um, in sub-Saharan Africa, uh, in the Middle East, in a lot of pl- parts of the world where there is a minimal amount of arable land. 
Um, that's the big question. Now that we're at 8 billion people on the planet, the big question is how are we going to produce enough food for all of them? How are we going to produce enough power for some of these techniques, though, right? Because that's, that's one of the major risks with this kind of uh, indoor, highly technological farming. Yeah, th- that is the big question. And especially as uh, power, th- you know, this year, as we know, fuel is very expensive in Western Europe. But a lot of these, at least for the LED technology, these limited light spectrum light bulbs have gotten so much more efficient, energy efficient. And with, in the Netherlands, there's a lot of use of solar power and kind of selling power back to the grid to defray some of that cost. So we're seeing a lot of innovation in that arena. It can be done, and the Dutch are doing it. You can find out a lot more and see some just wild pictures of what these farms look like in the Netherlands online at WashingtonPost.com from Laura Riley. Still to come, traffic safety around our state and school speed cameras with those speed zones. And now for the homeless student numbers we mentioned here a bit of go. Let's get to this story. As Northwest News Radio's John Lobertini has a look at the current stats. Roughly 300,000 students eligible for government assistance go unnoticed nationwide each year. That according to the Center for Public Integrity. Washington accounts for about 10%, but critics argue that number's low. The consequences are real. Homeless students have lower graduation rates, limiting job opportunities and job security, and that magnifies the chances they'll face housing instability as adults. Some observers say it's not a matter of neglect, but decades of budget cuts that have left school districts unable to keep up. Black and Latino students are hardest hit. American Indian or Alaska Native also figure in the mix. But according to the Seattle Times, exact numbers are hard to come by because disclosures from the U.S. Department of Education reveal nothing about the race or ethnicity of students recognized as homeless. As one advocate put it, it's an invisible population. John Lobertini, Northwest News Radio. Northwest News Radio this week, available as a podcast at nwnewsradio.com. And, of course, right here on Radio Every week at this very time. I'm Mark Christopher. More of the rundowns here of this past week ending November 26th. Stay with us. You're listening to Northwest This Week. And now, Mark Christopher. Traffic's been a concern for all of us. One drive in the morning, commute in the afternoon. You are in tune, of course, the challenges that are going on statewide. In fact, a number of injuries and deaths. Traffic safety advocates calling for major improvements. Drunk or drugged driving, distractions, and even road rage are some of the reasons traffic deaths last year were the highest in 20 years. But Vicki Clark, policy director for Washington Bikes, says state lawmakers eliminating right turns on red lights in urban areas would be a big start. Pedestrians have the right of way, but... But at the same time, vehicles are wanting to turn right into and across the crosswalk. There's a high conflict area. Like many of us, Everett City Council member Liz Vogeli says she's been caught off guard by walkers when turning right on red. So I've pretty much stopped doing that now. And drivers get angry at me stopping at a red light. The groups also want to see things like lower speed limits and reducing the legal blood alcohol limit to .05 for driving, which Clark says has proven in other countries to cut down on DUI-related deaths. In Snohomish County, Ryan Harris, Northwest News Radio. Cameras are being called upon to keep kids safe in one local district where officials say drivers are simply going too fast. 
And we're about to find out what area is a major concern. Speed enforcement cameras would be posted near three schools in Edmonds under a plan announced by Edmonds Mayor Mike Nelson. In a statement published in the Daily Herald, Nelson says, quote, Speed enforcement cameras at schools are a proven way to protect our most vulnerable. He goes on to say all fines collected by the city would be used to fund pedestrian safety improvements citywide. Unlike when a cop pulls you over for speeding, camera-based citations would go to the vehicle owner owner, not the driver. Under the plan, the first cameras would go up near Chase Lake Elementary, Westgate Elementary, and Edmonds Woodway High. Corwin Hake, Northwest News Radio. As we continue Northwest this week, ending for the week of November 26, an audit has found the top in the school district improperly paid thousands of dollars to Superintendent John Cerna and his son a former vice principal at Toppenish High School. The accountability audit released by the Washington State Auditor's Office looked into the superintendent's pay and benefits. According to the Yakima Herald, Superintendent Cerna was paid $310,000 last fiscal year. That audit found that the Toppenish School Board extended the superintendent's contract without evaluating and formally approving terms. It also found the district overpaid Cerna in retroactive payments and vacation leave balance cashouts. More than $7,000 was paid to former Toppenish High School Vice Principal Johnny Cerna for duties as a wrestling coach. Problem was, he was on paid leave at the time and did no coaching duties. He was on leave because he and his wife Bertha are accused of selling drugs and alcohol to students and having sexual relationships with students. Bertha Cerna is still facing charges on that while her husband is off the hook. Thank you, Carlene. Moving along here, four Western State Hospital employees who recently got more than $2 million in damages from the state are suing once again. They received the damages due to the state's failure to prevent repeated gender-based attacks by a patient. Now they allege officials withheld internal hospital investigations of their assaults until the trial was underway. An attorney for the employees told the Tacoma News Tribune the handling of the reports is an indication that hospital officials have not properly addressed staff safety concerns. A state spokesperson says they are reviewing the complaint. A response to the most recent lawsuit, which was filed on November 16th in Pierce County Superior Court, has not been made. Eric Heinz, Northwest News Radio. Stories you can catch up on. We've got one dealing with the Seattle budget debate and the Ballard Food Bank. And here now with Northwest News Radio's Tom Hutler, Alex Jones, the InfoWars host who claimed the Sandy Hook massacre was a hoax, lost repeatedly in court and now must pay victim families nearly $1.5 billion in damages. However, Jones has been moving money around in such a way that it could be out of reach for Sandy Hook families. How much money has he moved and how did he do this? Well, uh, Alex Jones created a, a number of different companies with mostly his father, uh, who's a dentist. There's another company that his sister manages. There's another company that his trainer started. And he's basically hired a lot of these different companies to do various things for his main media company. And after he started losing in court against the Sandy Hook folks, you can see that he started, you know, creating companies and moving money toward those companies, which is potentially problematic for the Sandy Hook folks because that might, might make it harder for them to access that money. Those companies are, in a way, now competing with the Sandy Hook family since his free speech systems business declared bankruptcy. Who would determine how the leftover money is distributed? Yeah, well, I mean, the reason we know about all this is because he put his company, Free Speech Systems, as you mentioned, into bankruptcy. So, you know, the good thing about bankruptcy from a transparency perspective is that company had to show all of its debts, all of its liabilities, and all of its assets before the judge. And the judge, to your question, is going to have to determine here 
who gets what of the money among the various creditors. And the Sandy Hook folks, you know, with the nearly $1.5 billion in damages against him, I don't think anybody thinks that they would ever get that amount of money. Uh-huh. But still, there's hundreds of millions of dollars that could ultimately be, those damages could be, you know, sort of inflicted upon Jones. Um, he has other creditors in there also, and the judge is going to have to sort through who is owed what. Despite all this, he is still personally very wealthy, right? What do you know about his net worth through your reporting? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a good estimate from one of the defamation trials of him being worth between $135 million and $270 million. I mean, that's all everything. If he sold all of his businesses, all of his homes, everything that he's got. I think that's a pretty good estimate. I mean, a mind-blowing thing about his business is just how much he makes on these nutritional supplements he sells all day long. Mm-hmm. Um, they were taken in, you know, on a reg- kind of a routinely basis, like 70 or $80 million a year, thousands of orders a day of these supplements that are marked up three, four, or five times what it cost them to buy them. So he's just incredible amount of money he's printing off of those sales. Back to the original premise here of him moving this money around. Is what he's doing, moving and potentially obscuring his funds, is that legal? Are they are they really out of the reach for the victims? Well, the judge appears to be aware that those transfers are problematic. The trustee in the case has been given some leeway by the judge to investigate these transfers and these companies. There is a report expected on that exact issue that has not been finalized yet. But I think most of the bankruptcy experts I talked to said this is going to be a very tough argument for Jones to make, that he should be allowed to make these transfers, because a lot of the companies that he's sending money to are owned predominantly by him. Yeah. And I don't think anybody, uh, most judges, I think, would view that as problematic. Now, oh, kind of a larger issue here, Tom, is Alex Jones is going to have a chance here to settle if he wants to, because the Sandy Hook folks... Even if they win in bankruptcy and the judge says you can have everything Jones has, you know, and then if he tries to make more money and start new companies, you can chase after that. It's just going to be chasing Alex Jones for, you know, maybe the rest of his life and maybe the rest of their lives. I I actually don't know what their appetite is for that. Yeah. Or they, you know, and they could try to settle in a way where, you know, maybe I don't think that money is the most important thing to the Sandy Hook families here by any means. I think it's. I think they would offer him something like, hey, keep your money, but just don't ever do this again. Yeah. No broadcasting, no website, no streaming. And I just, the problem is I just don't know if he would take that. This is Northwest News This Week. Northwest News this week is a way for you to catch up to stories of the past week. Perhaps you only got a headline or two, or because of the busy times of the year, you simply missed the story completely. Well, we're giving you a chance to catch up. A contentious and prolonged debate over housing, homeless sweeps, policing, and more comes to a climax in Seattle as city leaders put the final touches on a two-year, $3.2 billion budget. For the final time, city council members are gathering to amend the budget before a vote next Monday, Budget Chair Teresa Mosqueda describes as purely technical. The amendments that we will discuss today will compile the final budget action. Due to unexpected shortfalls, Mosqueda describes the final budget as a haircut. City programs and services are trimmed, but not shaved off. Among citizens offering public comment, not all are buying that. Cutting Green New Deal funding, tiny houses, and 
braces for human service workers. You can't call that anything but uh, austerity. It's not a haircut. Some among the public continue to argue against police funding for officer positions SPD has no plans to fill and for an increase in the Jumpstart payroll tax, often called the Amazon tax, to fund homeless services and affordable housing. Corwin Hake, Northwest News Radio. Demands are high, resources are low. Northwest News Radio's Marina Rockinger checking in with a local food bank and how they could use your help. When you walk in the door, it looks just like a grocery store. Aisles of canned and dry goods, dairy, meat, and produce sections. There's even a cafe offering hot meals and a cup of coffee. And it's all free at the Ballard Food Bank. But it also comes at a price. According to Executive Director Jen Musay, it's become more challenging to provide for the needs of the community in the wake of the pandemic. Prior to the pandemic, we spent about 300000 a year on food. This year, going into 2023, budgets were projecting to spend $1.5 million. Musée tells me it's due to food shortages and rising inflation. She says financial donations, food donations, and volunteers are always needed and welcomed. Marina Rockinger, Northwest News Radio. And now back to local politics. The leader of one of our area's biggest cities, fresh from meetings with her U.S. counterparts. In fact, she's bringing some ideas home, we found out. Tacoma Mayor Victoria Woodard says she not only got to display Grit City's new crime reduction plan and improved graduation rates at this year's National League of Cities conference, but that among what she brings back is a move from 911 calls triggering a police response to triaging those calls like St. Louis does. Much like the alternative services calls, if there's a better line of defense for someone when they call 911, then that's what we do. Woodard says those meetings have great value because unlike private sector ideas, which she says are hidden until they can make money. What happens in these kind of conferences is that we take a good idea and the greatest flattery is for somebody to take it back to their city and make it their own. Woodard's is the new National League of Cities president and since she gets to set an agenda, she tells me working on ideas to tackle housing shortages and partnering with the Federal Labor Department to cut the workforce shortage are at the top of her list. Ryan Harris, Northwest News Radio. And now for a story from the Department of Natural Resources. The Evergreen State's urban forest shrinking, but apparently there is a plan. Public Lands Commissioner Hillary Franz says many people think only natural forests face stress from heat and drought. But the fact is, our urban forests, our urban trees are equally stressed. To address the issue, Franz is asking the legislature for $8 million to fund local programs and create a youth conservation corps to plant and maintain trees. Bellevue Forest Management Supervisor Rick Bailey says increased funding will benefit the city's trees. If we have more resources to go out there and basically prop up tree health. We're going to be able to help those trees live longer and be healthier. France will roll out the complete plan next year. Kathy O'Shea, Northwest News Radio. In case you didn't know, we found our state is represented on the International Space Station as part of an experiment to grow crops. Eric Heinz, Northwest News Radio, explains. It's not an astronaut, but soil from Prosser in Benton County. Researchers at the Pacific Northwest National Laboratory in Richland sent 104 test tubes of soil on a SpaceX rocket to the space station. They want to see how certain bacteria in the soil that's critical to growing crops behaves in space. The experiment returns to Earth next month where the soil will be inspected. It's hoped it will lead to a reliable food supply for a station on the moon or for exploration of other planets. 
Eric Heintz, Northwest News Radio. An appeals court has thrown out a class action lawsuit accusing Boeing and Southwest Airlines of covering up a fatal flaw in the 737 MAX. The suit accused Southwest of pressuring Boeing into deceiving the FAA during testing and certification of the 737 MAX in order to lower pilot training costs. Plaintiffs also alleged that the companies misled regulators about the MCAS flight control system blamed for two deadly crashes that led to the grounding of the global fleet. Passengers said they overpaid for tickets because demand and prices would have fallen had the truth been known. But Reuters reports the three-judge panel said the plaintiffs could not prove that they had been harmed, so the case was dismissed. Jeff Pogela, Northwest News Radio. Just ahead, some Northwest music news involving a one-person instrumentalist. And how many instruments all at once? Don't be thinking Dick Van Dyke and Mary Poppins. It's a lot bigger than that. And Blue Man, it grabs fans' attention all over again here in the Northwest. A big change coming to the executive suite at Disney, but it's somebody who has worn the ears before. Bob Iger heading back as a head mouse, at least for a couple of years. A story we found in the Washington Post. Taylor Van Syce of Northwest News Radio had questions. Stephen, I have to say, I'm surprised by some of the hate directed at the outgoing CEO, Bob Chapek. I'm a, I'm a casual Disney consumer with a two-year-old at home and Star Wars in my heart. But what's been going on since Iger retired? The old Hollywood adage, success is many fathers and failures and orphans. And I think we're seeing that uh, play out Taylor in real time with uh, with Chapek as he's out the door. A lot of people are uh, lamenting his uh, qualities and perceived failures. But, you know, it's, it's a sort of fascinating narrative. I mean, Bob Iger, longtime successful CEO of Disney, led them through a lot of the expansions that I think you and uh, uh, so many uh, people and families around the country experienced with Marvel and Star Wars acquisitions and all of that. And now here we are, um, you know, just uh, barely well, two and a half years after he stepped down and, uh, you know, less than a year after he fully retired. And now he's coming back. And, and I think the feeling is that company's a little bit off track under Bob Chapek, who uh, came in as a theme park guy, didn't really know the film and TV side, uh, seen as a run that wasn't entirely successful. And now uh, Iger's going to kind of ride back in as a white knight and try to save the show. It's interesting you mentioned that, that Chapek was the theme park guy. From the sound of it in your report, most of the complaints are about the theme parks. Yeah, that's what I was just talking about that with an editor. In fact, it's kind of funny that, that or, or sort of curious, I would say, that uh, for, for all the uh, ways that was supposedly his strength. Uh, apparently, that were there were things that were not going well uh, there either. Now, now in his defense, and I think he would be the first to argue this, but we should all acknowledge this: the pandemic. You know, he came in. Listeners may know he came in in February of 2020, uh, just several weeks before uh, pretty much all the parks around the world were shut down, and uh, and you know they they had to absorb the uh, the shutdowns and then and then the partial reopenings and all the the, the trauma that uh, we all unfortunately have. Uh, around the, the COVID pandemic, uh, particularly in 2020 and 2021, uh, in terms of our economic impact and, and our impact on public health and public and, and our lives. So, you know, there's no doubt that he, he was sort of a victim of circumstance in that regard. Uh, but I think there's also been uh, a fair number of, criti- uh, of critics out there who said that uh, that doesn't mean he handled it especially well either. Now, not everything that has changed over the last couple of years has come down to finances explicitly. You can read a lot more about what happened under Chapek and what could change under Iger, or maybe not, including concerns that some critics have had about Disney's stance on race, gender, and sexuality. Find it all online at WashingtonPost.com from Stephen Zychik. It's the one source here at this time every week for you to catch up to the past stories of the week ending November the 26th. I'm Mark Christopher, and more of Northwest This Week just ahead. Northwest This Week continues. 
So right away, I'm hearing as a musician and a longtime fan of Northwest music, all sorts, of course. This is something you've got to see to believe. And think of how many times we've seen street musicians playing more than one instrument all at the same time. Well, we found a one-man hard rock band. It's an Everett Man's unique style that's gone viral. And now he's taking the act on the road. Jeremy DeBarty's technique is astounding. Crouched behind a Ludwig drum kit, he cradles a Fender electric guitar. With every drum stroke, he also crashes out a guitar chord. And of course, that's Jeremy singing the rockers he writes himself as a one-man band called Steel Beans. The 34-year-old is an unlikely rock star with his glasses, his handlebar mustache, and his shirt unselfconsciously unbuttoned to reveal a substantial beer belly. But Dabardi says, suddenly, he's got people lining up for selfies. Dabardi's overnight success story is anything but. He had been gigging for 15 years when the video we're listening to now went viral on Instagram. He tells the Ever Herald it's sort of unreal. I'm just a North Everett guy, he says. Now Jeremy's planning an album and a tour. Corwin Hake, Northwest News Radio. A very innovative group of blue men took the stage in the area for the first time about 35 years ago, and we haven't stopped laughing since. Brian Calvert, about this group entertaining millions without saying a word. My job is to talk, and talk a lot. But if you're a member of the Blue Man Group, you got to keep that trap shut. All you've got is your eye contact. How exactly do you describe the Blue Man Group? Essentially, what it is, is at in a very basic level, it are three blue men uh, who do not speak. They're kind of other beings that are kind of placed in our space and are trying to kind of connect to the audience in any way that they can. Adam Zuick has been a Blue Man for a while now. Yeah, I um, I auditioned 10 years ago. He's allowed to talk to me when not painted blue, but how in the world do you work with a team without speaking, Adam? Yeah, that's a huge part of the character. There are three blue men, but they act as one. Um, and it's a process that we call flocking. Um, excuse me? Like, like birds, they flock. Uh, they all fly together, and when one turns right, the rest of them turn right. Um, it's very much that with the blue men. Uh, we have a very like keen sense of where each other are and how each other are feeling. Am I blue? Their antics are known around the world, and you can't help but to laugh. Adam, you can't speak, but has something ever been so funny you broke character and laughed out loud? I pride myself on staying in character. Um, yeah, it's difficult at times. It's vitally important to remain silent. The difference between us staying completely stoic and, and not laughing compared to like an audience member or an, or an audience that's laughing very hard is exactly what like makes the show amazing. The Blue Man Group will perform this weekend at the Paramount, a brand new show with a new set you've never seen before. But at the heart of the performance is the same childlike discovery that takes place every time they pick up an instrument or invite an audience member to come up on stage. Kids are, are constantly discovering new things and, and doing funny things with random stuff, uh, which is exactly what the Blue Man does. But normal adults have kind of grown numb to these things. And so to kind of like bring back that uh, original joy of seeing things for the first time or seeing them in a different way um, is a magical thing. Brian Calvert, Northwest News Radio. 
And there you go on efforts of the entire staff of Northwest News Radio. Northwest This Week ending for the week of November 26. It's heard every week at this time here on Northwest News Radio, AM 1000, FM 97.7, and also as a podcast at nwnewsradio.com, where you'll find other favorites like Politicast, LifeBeat, and Puget Sound Now. In fact, if you enjoy this program as a podcast, feel free, we hope you will, to share a rating and review. It's simple to do at Apple Podcasts. Northwest This Week, produced by Bill O. O'Neill, editor and tech advisor, Painter Webb. I'm Mark Christopher. On behalf of all of us here at Northwest News Radio, thank you so much for listening. Happy holidays, and we'll see you next week.